times in this letter to the Philippians, Paul reminds them that this world is not our home. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the gospel. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. Well, here we are in week six, and Paul and Silas are in jail in Acts chapter 16. They've been thrown into jail because they're preaching the gospel, and uh, it wasn't just the preaching of the gospel, but the fact of the matter is, is that there was a slave girl who was demon-possessed and had the ability to foretell uh, people's future. It was fortune-telling. And uh, this, this slave girl would run after Paul and Silas and say, these people are preaching the gospel, listen to them, and, and so on and so forth. And now you'd think that that was an okay thing, but Paul was able to discern that, that this was just harassment. And, and so what he did is he cast the devil, cast the demon out of this girl. And of course, the slave owners were furious because this girl had made them so much money. They were extremely rich, and now their source of profit was gone. And so they got the whole city mad at, at Paul and Silas, and a very long story just long, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and then thrown into jail. Well, you, you know the story. I, I mentioned it to you already a few weeks ago. While they're in jail, they're singing praises to God, they're their feet and their hands are manacled. They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything, but they can sing. Nobody put a gag in their mouth. And so they're sitting there worshiping God. They're praising the Lord. They're, they're thanking God for his kindness and his goodness. And by the way, that should be a lesson to all of us because for many of us, when times are difficult, the last thing we want to do is worship God, isn't it? We want to complain, but not Paul and Silas. So they're singing, and at about midnight, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, tells us there's an earthquake. And, and suddenly, everybody is, is loose, they're free, all the shackles have fallen off, and the jailer thinking, this is it, I've, I've, he's got one job, and that's to keep the prisoners in prison. He's thinking, that's it, I'm a dead man, and he's about to kill himself. And the apostle Paul says, hold on a minute, we're all here, don't kill yourself, and I love what the jailer says in response. He doesn't say, oh, phew. He says, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> That's his question. He was too close this time. So he, uh, he becomes a Christian. We're told in Acts 16 that both he and, uh, and his wife and his children and, and, and his slaves, everybody in the household uh, follows Christ. Well, the jailer comes to uh, to Paul and Silas with a message from the magistrates. 
who said, you uh, may go. Paul, Paul's jailer tells him, release those men. And, and uh, Paul says, uh, no, we're not, we're, not, we're not leaving jail so quickly and so easily. Paul says, these men beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Don't you love his nerve, his temerity? In verse 38 of chapter 16 of Acts, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed, and they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, politely requesting them to leave the city. Now, We've come to the end of the first chapter of Philippians. And what we want to understand here is that citizenship is, in fact, a big deal. It gives us rights. It gives us privileges. And this is what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. The good news, in case you don't know, the, the theological term for it is the gospel, the term that was used for, uh, for hundreds of years, but many people didn't know what gospel meant. It means good news. I like to use the term gospel because I want us to understand that it is a specific kind of good news. It's a good news that comes about Jesus Christ from Jesus Christ. Get it? That's why I put gospel in there, because I want you to understand that. So Paul purposely uses the language of citizenship because he has in mind the ultimate citizenship of the Philippians. And as we read this letter, we understand it's not just for the Philippians, it's for us as well. Paul wants us to understand that as Christians, we are citizens of heaven. So this morning, I want us to understand what heavenly citizenship is. So, Paul uses the word metaphorically. He says, he's basically saying, live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. How many know today that heaven is our home? Some of you know that. Ray knows that. I heard him clearly. Heaven is our homeland. That's where, that's where we're all going. That's where we belong. We're on this earth for as aliens. And in fact, that's what the Bible actually says, that we who are Christians are aliens here because we don't belong here. This world's not our home. However, Jesus wants us to be here for a while, uh, basically to spread the gospel, the good news about him, before he takes us home. So just as Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, Rome, how many know that Rome is in Italy? It's in the adjacent country to Greece. So just as Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, so the church is a colony of heaven in Philippi. Did you get that? The church in Philippi is a colony of heaven, just as Philippi is a colony of Rome in Greece. You need to understand that. This is what Paul is pointing out here. So here's the thing. I am a citizen of Canada, I am a citizen of Winnipeg. I was born and raised here. I pay taxes here. 
and I'm entitled to all the rights and privileges of a citizen of this country. I have freedom because we have a constitution that guarantees that, although I think we're on shaky ground these days, but definitely we have a constitution that at least declares that. We have a military that protects us. On a more basic level, my streets plowed at least once a winter. <laughs> the snow now is as high as the street signs on my, on my street. The garbage is picked up weekly. It even picks up recyclables in a separate bin. I can go to the doctor or to the hospital at any time. You get the picture. I have rights and privileges as a citizen. But here's what you need to know. Here's what I need to know. As a Christian, I am first a citizen of heaven. Do you understand that? So when I look out across this auditorium this morning, I don't see people of different nationalities or different races. I see my brothers and sisters in Christ, period. Because cross church is a colony of heaven. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Another way to put it is, this is a little patch of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a place where God dwells. Now, God does not dwell in temples built by the hands of men. Where does he dwell? He dwells in you and me. So this is a little patch of, of Eden, of heaven. So my allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ and then to my church, because this is, this is the kingdom that I belong to. Well, the Philippian brothers and sisters, they struggled in that very proud and very elitist little Roman colony. It really was an elitist Roman colony. And the people of that little colony were preoccupied with the coveted citizenship of Rome. So here's Paul and Silas, and they're the ones that actually are citizens of Rome. And the magistrates, they know that if Rome finds out that they beat Paul and Silas and threw them into prison without a trial, their lives could be forfeit. It was serious stuff. Paul wants the Philippians to now start thinking of themselves not as citizens of Philippi, but to see themselves, more importantly, as citizens of heaven. And so I want to ask that question of you this morning. Do you see yourself as a citizen of heaven or simply as a citizen of this country? Now, can I just say this before we go any further? Because some maybe are thinking, oh, Pastor Allen is saying, I'm a citizen of heaven, therefore I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. Paul makes it clear in the book of Romans that our responsibility as good citizens of heaven, that we are to be good citizens here on earth. Get it? Got it? Good. So Paul challenges his beloved Philippians with a counter-citizenship whose capital city and seat of power are not earthly but heavenly. This is what he wants them to think. He wants them to start thinking now. He wants them to think of themselves as true citizens of heaven. He wants them to realize that their true Lord is not Lord Caesar, 
but Lord Jesus Christ. The town of Philippi was, uh, was enjoying the personal patronage and favor of Lord Nero. And so the Philippians saw the Christians as a threat to the empire, as a threat to their way of life. But the Philippians were subjects of the one who alone is Lord and to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This was, a, this was treasonous. This was high treason. How on earth could these Philippians be so bold as to stand up against not just Nero, but the whole Roman Empire. Here's what you and I need to understand today as citizens of heaven. You and I are enemies of the state because we recognize that our, the true authority that we are to submit to is first and foremost the Lord Jesus Christ. The world does not like that. They're threatened by that. So let me ask the question, where is your citizenship? And are you living as a citizen of heaven or are you living as a citizen of earth? Pastor Allen, what is the difference? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because further on in Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, here's what Paul says. Here's the first bunch of the citizens of earth. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Does that not sound like citizenship on this earth? It certainly sounds like this generation. We're concerned about one thing and one thing only, and that's myself and my comfort and making sure that my appetites are fulfilled and... Paul says they even brag about shameful things. Hey, look, there's nothing new under the sun. 2,000 years later, we can say exactly the same things about the citizens of this world. Now, if you are born again, if you've been converted, if you've given your life to Christ, you are no longer a citizen of this world. You are a citizen of heaven. What does a citizen of heaven look like? Well, Paul says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. You see, the, the difference between the two groups is simply their affection, their desire, and their longing. Our longings as, as citizens of heaven is for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing to us. It's all that matters. And so I ask you the question again, are you a citizen of earth or are you a citizen of heaven? And if you, if you and I are honest, we'd have to admit that sometimes we fit into that first category. And this is what the apostle Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to see this. And so Paul goes on to say this. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. What is he saying here? We must have a gospel-first ethic. Did you get that? Because when you take your ethics course in university or high school, they don't talk about the gospel-first ethic. They never heard of that. But we as Christians understand that this is the most important aspect of our lives. 
Paul can be described as a man who lives by the gospel-first ethic. It's the most important thing in his life. And why is that? Why is it the most important thing in his life? Well, he tells us in Romans 1, 16 to 18, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, we're not like the world because we're citizens of heaven. We live with faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in the governments of this world, in the Nero's of this world. Our faith is not in the political systems of this world. One of the, the great, one of the great things, great, great errors and mistakes that's happening in North America or in the West is that somehow Christianity and politics have been married. So that, so that it's hard to tell what your political position is versus your, your citizenship. Is it in heaven or on earth? We put our faith in political systems. We put our, our faith in people. And Paul's very clear about this. Our, our, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. So he says in verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Listen, as citizens of heaven, you and I have a faith in Jesus Christ. That faith in Jesus Christ compels us to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and not the leaders and the systems of this world. Now, the wonderful thing is, is that Western government, Western law is based on Judeo-Christian teachings. It's based on Scripture, not on Sharia law, but on the Word of God. Now, unfortunately, what we're seeing happen in our day, in our times, I didn't believe I would see this in my day, but now we have a system, a government, a government and a, uh, a, a system of politics that is now hating Scripture. I've read uh, of many, many instances where the Ten Commandments have been posted in the courtroom, but they've been taken out now because they are an offense. Well, of course they're an offense because it's calling us to an allegiance to a higher power. And we know who that higher power is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He's our captain. He's our guide. We obey him and we obey him first. Well, Paul goes on to say this. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, I'm going to tell you something. We, have, we are living in a day and an age where we have government-sanctioned wickedness, and we could list them all. The one that comes to my mind instantly is, of course, abortion. You think God is going to let this go? No, absolutely not. The wrath of God's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So you and I need to understand we're not like the world. 
When I hear Christians say, oh, yes, I believe that it's okay to have abortions under certain circumstances, I want to say, well, who's your Lord and what Bible are you reading? You say, Pastor Allen, surely there's not Christians who would believe that abortion is okay. Oh, you'd be shocked and surprised. There's all kinds of political leaders who claim to be Christians who are 100% in favor of abortion. You see, we get into this, into this trouble. We, we, we fall into this trap when we fail to understand that our first allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. We obey him. We do his will. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray every day. What? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what Paul's talking about when he talks about living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is obedience to Christ, is what it is. Wow. So the Philippian brothers and sisters are struggling here. And Paul is helping them to understand what truly matters. As a citizen of heaven, the gospel is always first in Paul's preaching, in his teaching, in every decision he makes. Folks, the gospel is his only agenda. Did you get that? For some of us, we have been told that we need to have our dreams and and follow our dreams and have a vision and and go forth and and do whatever we want to do and get get God's blessing on it. But, But for the apostle Paul, he had only one agenda. He wasn't talking about his dream to build a big church in Rome. He had no dream to build a crystal cathedral. He, no, that's not on his, that was not on his radar. He had one purpose and one purpose alone, and that was to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he lived his whole life fulfilling that obligation. Now, do you understand today that as Christians, that has to be our agenda as well? You say, but Pastor Ellen, I'm not in full-time ministry. doesn't matter. This is your calling. If you're a parent, your your job is to make sure your kids receive the the good news about Jesus Christ, that they understand the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's your job to model it to them through a life that is conducted in a way, in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. Your kids are watching your example. They're watching what you say. They're watching what you do. They're watching to see whether or not your Christianity is real or if you're just a hypocrite. Your agenda is the gospel. Whether you've got children or not, your life has got to be the gospel. Listen, folks, listen to this. Are you ready for this? I should almost get you to do a a drum roll but I'm not going to. The gospel first ethic was what Paul was demanding of the Philippians. One of the things that has troubled me, especially in in the year 2022, actually for the last five, six years, and I haven't been able to quite put my, my finger on it, but I have recently come to the understanding that the problem in the church is that its members don't understand what the gospel is. We don't get that. So how many remember the seven habits? Well, there's going to be a change, and I'm going to be unfolding that fully in 
in uh, just, uh, just a couple months. But I'm going, to t- I'm going to give you just a hint of what's coming. The first habit is going to be changed. The first habit is going to be a gospel worldview, having the mind of Christ. Because as Christians, if we don't understand the gospel, then none of the rest of the habits will make sense. You're just going through religious ritual. It's so urgent to me that I feel that we need to institute this instantly. And one of the things I've spoken to Delson about is when I, next time I go to Africa, I want to do a whole, a whole session, perhaps a whole conference on the gospel. Because this is what defines who we are. What Jesus Christ came to this earth to do, to die on the cross because of our sin, to reconcile us to God, to give us new life, to give us eternal life. And now everything has got to be understood and reckoned through that gospel filter. This gospel filter will be the thing that helps us understand what is of God and what is not of God. So there's just a bit of a sneak peek of what's coming. Now, I'm going to tell you, in Philippi, there was, there, was, there was never a friendly environment between the gospel and, and the city of Philippi. Why is that? Because the gospel is an offense. Does everybody understand that today? And so here's what the church is busy, has been busy doing for the last, I would say, 15, 20 years. We have got what's called a seeker-sensitive approach to doing church. In other words, when, when, when people who don't know Christ come to church, what we do is we want to water it down because we don't want to offend anybody. So we don't want to use words like sin. We don't want to use words like hell. We don't want to talk about the wrath of God, even though it's Romans 1.18. We don't want to talk about that because we don't want to offend the seeker. Now, it's interesting that that pastors are calling it seeker-sensitive. And by seeker, they mean people who are not Christians. But there's no such thing. It doesn't exist because Paul tells us in the book of Romans, there's none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek God. Unless the Spirit of God touches a person's life and opens their heart, opens their eyes, opens their mind to receive Christ, they're never going to seek him. And so rather than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we do is we preach a psychology lesson that really appeals to our minds. We instantly feel, oh, yes, that makes sense. Now I get it. Can I tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is rejected by people that don't know Christ unless the Holy Spirit comes in and opens their eyes because the Bible tells us that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who are perishing. People who reject God, people who reject Christ, who reject the gospel, reject it because Satan has blinded their eyes. And unless God takes the veil from their eyes, there's no way that they can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul says, you need to stand fast. Even though Philippi hates the gospel and hates Christians and hates Christ, you need to stand firm, living as a citizen of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. This little Roman city declared war on Paul and his converts. From day one, when the Roman magistrates first 
arrested Paul and Silas and threw him into jail. This was a, a cosmic war. It's just a war between heaven and hell. This is not just a war of ideologies. We're talking about a spiritual battle happening. And Paul wants us to see this, to have that kind of wisdom and that kind of of understanding where we know what is actually going on. And so when people are attacking you for your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand it's nothing personal. It's just business. This is something spiritual that's going on. And so if you share your faith with a friend or with people at school or, or at work, and they get angry at you, don't, don't be offended, don't be surprised. There's a spiritual battle going on. And so these Philippian believers, as citizens of heaven and subjects of the Lord Jesus, they needed to understand that they were involved in mortal combat. We're not talking about the video game here. We're talking about a battle between heaven and earth. And every time you you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, every time you tell anybody about Jesus Christ, folks, what's happening now is that you are entering into the spiritual realm and you are doing battle. Now, the person that you're sharing the gospel with, they'll probably not have a clue. But you'll know that you're in battle because, because of their reaction. They'll get huffy. They'll say, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a bad person. I don't do bad things. They'll say things like this. They'll say, uh, church in the Bible, that's for, that's for weak people. I don't need a crutch. You, you've heard talk like that. Or they'll say things like this. Oh, yeah, but the Bible has been proven to, to, to contradict itself. They'll say, oh, there's been many gospels. And they'll, they'll drag out every old argument that has been refuted over and over and over again through the, through the ages. What's going on? Why the opposition? Why the anger? Because it's a spiritual battle. Because now heaven and hell have entered into it. And it was all because you innocently told somebody about Jesus. You tell somebody about Jesus and all the angels of heaven, now they're all, they're all standing up, they're at attention, they're ready to go at it. There's a battle to be fought in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm, the realm to which you belong. So, what were their weapons what were the Philippians' weapons? What are, you, what are your weapons and my weapons? Well, my weapon, your weapon, is first of all the gospel. How many know that that is, that that is a weapon? It's, it's, a, it's an offensive weapon. It really offends. And this is, why, the, by the way, why we need to pray. This is why we ask you to come to pray on Tuesday nights because when you and I go forth in battle for the Lord, we need God to do a sovereign work by his spirit in the hearts and the lives of the people that we love, the people we're praying for, the people we want to see come to Christ. So we go forth into battle, but we go forth in prayer first. So we take the gospel, and then what is our other weapon? Well... It's, it's lives that have lived in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. So folks, listen to me. If you're busy telling people about Jesus and then on the side you're gossiping with the people you work with, the people you're trying to win for Christ, they're gonna look at you and say, well, you're a big what? Hypocrite. Thank you, Ray. You're a big hypocrite. You're full of it. This is not real religion. This is phony baloney religion. 
And some of you grew up in a home where it was phony baloney religion and, and you had to find Christ all on your own because it wasn't because of the example of your parents. You see how important this is, that you and I remember that we're citizens of heaven and we're to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the way you live your life will definitely have an effect on your children, on your friends, on their workmates. The Roman citizens of Philippi, they honored the emperor at every public gathering, worshiping him as, as Lord, as God. But then there's those pesky Christians in Philippi. They refused to worship Nero. They refused to bend their knee to him. Wow. So Paul says this. He says, then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news, which is the gospel. So here's the thing, folks. In just a few minutes... We are going to receive communion together. We're going to celebrate the body of Christ, the body that went to the cross and suffered the punishment that you and I deserve. But here's what you're going to discover as you read the Word of God. The body of Christ is also the term that describes the church. And Paul tells us in Corinthians that anybody who eats or drinks the bread uh, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will come under the judgment of God. Now, here's what you and I need to understand. The reason you don't take communion is not because you're a sinner. The fact is, is that you're sitting beside sinners. You're looking at a sinner, and there's sinners sitting behind you. There's sinners everywhere here. That's not why we don't take communion. Jesus Christ died for sinners to take away our sin to give us the righteousness of Christ. But when you and I hold a grudge against one another, when you and I hate one another, when you and I are angry with one another or with others, then, folks, the Bible declares that we are unworthy of taking the body and blood of the Lord. And as we take communion today, I want everybody to take it. If, you're, if you put your faith in Christ, I want you to take it today if you have forgiven those who have sinned against you, but if you are holding a grudge, don't you dare take it because you will come under the judgment of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul says here that it's standing together with one spirit, with one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news, that this is what we do as the body of Christ. This is what the citizens of heaven do. We are one in the bond of love. We are one in the Holy Spirit. And our job is to remain one. You've heard the expression, united we stand and divided we fall. You've heard that. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul warned us of over and over and over again. We are not ignorant, Paul says. We're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. We know the way Satan works. He, cause, he tries to cause division. He tries to cause us to hate one another, to be angry with one another, to hold a grudge against one another. Folks, every time that you resist the temptation to hold a grudge against somebody, what you're doing is spiritual warfare. 
Did you know that? Every time you decide to forgive your wife, you're doing spiritual warfare, or, or forgive your husband, or forgive your kids, or forgive your boss or the people you work with. You're doing spiritual warfare. You're saying, I refuse to be a citizen of this world. I am a citizen of heaven. I'm going to act like a citizen of heaven. I'm going to remain one in the bond of love with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith. This is what makes us a powerful church. I thank God that we were able to make it through the COVID pandemic all in one piece. There's so many churches that have experienced the division and hardship and, and, and fighting. What, what happened, folks? They forgot that the gospel is what makes us one. That's the most important thing. So whatever, I, I said this two years ago, whatever your opinion is about COVID or about shots, about vaccines, it's your business. Keep it to yourself. If you're going to talk about anything, talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us, because there's what? One Lord, one baptism, one spirit. This is what makes us one. Ah, I want you to see that this standing together as one, this ability to fight together for the faith. The faith, by the way, is the good news, the, the way, the, which is the gospel. The way that we do this, folks, is in the power of the Holy Spirit, so when we talk about here with one spirit, we're not talking about like team spirit. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the actual Holy Spirit. This is not done in your own power or in your own strength. Again, this is why we join together on Tuesday nights to pray, so that we'll be of one heart and one mind. And I just was so thankful for the, some of the young people that have been attending and their prayers, so powerful, and, and some new people coming. Wow. This is what brings unity. This is what brings power to the, to the body of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul adds that we need to be fearless. So here's what he says. He says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Hey, isn't that exactly how some of us feel? We're, we're intimidated to tell people about Christ because we're afraid of their reaction. Paul says, don't be intimidated. And here's, here's what you need to know. The minute that you are telling people about Jesus Christ, you're afraid of what their reaction is. What you need to do is you need to get off of the plane of other human beings and enter into a spiritual plane and understand that your unsaved loved ones are here and you are here. You are now in, on a spiritual level and you are now entering into a spiritual battle for that friend's, that child's, that brother, that sister, that cousin, whatever, you're entering into a battle for their soul. So Paul says, don't be intimidated. You need to understand what's going on here. You need to see the big picture. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. And then he says, this will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed. Hey, do you remember when you, uh, I don't know if you played on any kind of a sports team, but uh, believe it or not, I played hockey up until I was age 15. And one of the things that we do, especially if we were going to uh, to one of the neighboring community centers to play hockey is that we would all try to puff ourselves up and look like we were cool and unintimidated and hoping that our toughness would be a sign of the opponent's destruction and our victory. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. If you understand what's really going on, 
then now you're not a weakling. Now you are somebody who's been empowered by the Holy Spirit, enabled to do battle in the spiritual realm. And how are you doing that battle? You're telling them the good news about Jesus Christ. Don't be intimidated, but step up and do what needs to be done. Folks, listen, our our courage and our fearlessness is a sign to people. It's a sign to your family and your friends that, what, that you have an authority that comes from heaven. They, they recognize that. They say, I don't know what happened to Alan. He was so, so, so quiet and so shy, such an introvert. What's going on here? I remember clearly when I was, became aware of the fact that I was converted and I experienced the, uh, a, a Holy Spirit experience at camp. I came home from camp and I was witnessing to anybody and everybody. I even witnessed to my grandmother who was definitely an atheist. She's the one I told you about her. She's the one who said to me, Alan, there's no pie in the sky. <laughs> no idea what that means, but she said that to me, making it clear to me that she did not believe in God. But you see, I had, a, I had an authority that came from heaven, from the Holy Spirit, and I spoke up, stepped up, and told her about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I did that throughout my whole life to the point that when she was on her deathbed, I came to her and I held her hand. She couldn't talk, but she was conscious. And I said, Grandma, if you can hear, my, hear me, squeeze my hand. She squeezed my hand. I said, I've been telling you about Jesus my whole life. Do you want to make sure that you're ready to meet him? If the answer is yes, squeeze my hand. She squeezed my hand. And I said, Grandma, I'm going to pray for you now. I'm going to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would forgive you of your sin. And if you agree that this is what you want, squeeze my hand. And then my heart started beating because I wondered what on earth was going to happen next. And she squeezed my hand. What gives a 10-year-old boy an authority to talk to his grandma who is an atheist about Jesus? The one Lord, the one Spirit who gives me the power to be unintimidated by my enemies. You say, your grandma's your enemy? Hey, listen, anybody who is an enemy of Christ is an enemy of mine. Did you get that? I want to close with these words. Um, Paul says, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in the struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of you. Do you know, folks, we have gone through a period in history where Christians have gone relatively unpersecuted, but that's all changing now. In 1984, Mehdi Dubaj was imprisoned by the government of Iran on charges of apostasy. He converted from Islam to Christianity. He languished in prison for 10 years until his case was tried in 1994. And this was the last, his last lines of his written defense. And he said, Jesus Christ is our Lord and he is the Son of God, period. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death 
is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. He was sentenced to execution, but was released under pressure from the U.S. State Department. But it was only a few days later that he was found dead in a Tehran park. Folks, this is sometimes what happens. This is sometimes what happens. You've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. There's a whole generation of Christians who are utterly confused about who God is and what God expects of us because they've been hearing preachers preaching on TV that if you're a Christian, you won't suffer. And Paul clearly tells Timothy, everybody who follows Christ is going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You will suffer. And that wonderful thing is that when Paul says you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, that word given is, it could be actually translated as grace. You've been given the grace of trusting in Christ and the grace and privilege of suffering for him. This is tough stuff, isn't it? Pastor Allen, I wasn't really expecting this when I came to church today. Can't you give me some good news? Folks, this is the good news. This is the good news. God has given us the grace to be converted, to be born again, and he's given us the grace to suffer for his great name. Could there be anything better? <laughs> don't, say, don't say that there could be something better. Because if you're a citizen of heaven, then you understand the great privilege it's ours to belong to Christ. We're going to have communion now. And um, I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads. And we're going to pray for a moment. And then if you would just prepare your hearts, make sure that you have made your peace with God and that there's peace in your heart towards all people in your life. Father, thank you today for the reminder from your word that we are citizens of heaven. Father, we look at men like Mahedi Debaj, Iranian converting from Islam to Christianity, and we see his great faith and recognize that he obviously has received the grace to trust in Christ, but also the grace to suffer for Christ. Father, we thank you today that we are struggling together as citizens of heaven against the powers of this world. But we thank you, God. We don't do it in our own power. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, help us to examine our lives to see whether or not we are truly citizens of heaven or if we are one foot in the, the kingdom of this world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven. God, grant us the grace and strength to be purely citizens of heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's take a moment right now just to examine our hearts. Father, we acknowledge today that we, we need the righteousness of Christ. We acknowledge today, God, that we needed Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. We acknowledge today, Lord, our debt. And we thank you, O oh God, that you are a God who does forgive us our trespasses. Father, before we go any further, we want to make sure that we have forgiven others their trespasses against us. We're asking for grace right now, O oh God, to believe you and trust you that obedience is what produces joy and peace in our lives. And more than that, obedience to Christ is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Father, thank you today that as we celebrate this communion together, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the one who has made us citizens of heaven. And we rejoice, O oh God, that because Christ went to the cross and shed his blood for us, we rejoice that we have eternal life. So, Father, as we examine our hearts now, we ask you to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And your word tells us that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for that today, O oh God. Lord, we want to be a people who eat and drink the cup in a worthy manner. And likewise, we want to be a people who live the Christian life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to recognize today that we need Jesus. because we want to glorify you, O oh God. This body and blood was given a reminder that we have the righteousness of Christ as we take this communion together, Lord. Fill our hearts with, with joy and, and thanksgiving that Christ has bridged the gap and has reconciled us to the Father. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread after he'd given thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let's take the bread together, shall we? And I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. In the same manner, after he broke the bread, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death 
until I return. Let's take it together, shall we? Thank you, Lord. Father, as we come to the end of this gathering, we're asking, Lord, for the special outpouring of your grace, enabling us, O oh God, to live as true citizens of heaven. We thank you for the grace, O oh God, that has made it possible for us to be converted. Are there any here today, Lord, who have not yet put their faith in you? Father, give these people the courage to come and speak to me so that we may pray together. They may be born again. Father, we thank you for the grace that gives us the privilege of suffering for your name. Father, help us, we pray, to be a courageous, fearless people, not afraid of the things of this world, not afraid of men, not afraid of the devil who may be able to strike us down. But God, we recognize today that our, our lives are in your hands and you've given us eternal life. And God, nobody can take that away from us and we give you thanks for that. Father, we pray now as we go from this place, fill our hearts with joy and with thanksgiving. We'll give you the praise because you're worthy of it. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, you are a citizen of heaven. <laughs>